Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Elixir Fountain. I'm your host, Johnny Wynn, and we're back with the news and interviews from around the Elixir community. This summer, don't miss out on Code Elixir London, July 18th. Keynotes from Bruce Tate and Tatiana. Training will include OTP and Live View with Bruce Tate, and our good friend Martin Grosby will host the Elixir training session. You don't want to miss out, so get your tickets today. Have you signed up for the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation yet? You should. The Erlang Ecosystems Foundation's goal is to grow and support a diverse community around the Beam ecosystem by encouraging continued development of technologies and open source projects based on and around its runtime and languages. Find out more at erlf.org. That's E-R-L-E-F dot org. Well, today I'm pleased to have with me two very special guests from the foundation, Alistair Woodman and Mariam Pinna. Greetings to you both. Hello. Hello. How are y'all doing today? We're great. Right. <laughs> Very it's always busy morning. <laughs> it, it's always fun with the the panel shows because everybody's like, "Oh, should I say now?" <laughs> but it gets easier. Trust me. Trust me. So, well, I'll let I'll let y'all start and tell us a little bit about uh, what you have to do with the foundation, so that we can kind of get some background on y'all. Uh, Alistair, do you want to kick us off? Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, thanks for breaking the tie. Um, so I've been involved with um, the. Actually, my involvement with the Erlang community is probably 10 years now. Um, I'm a relatively non-standard individual associated with the community in the sense that I don't program for a living. Um, so when I found out about Erlang, I was actually doing product uh, management at Cisco. And uh, I ran into the Tayless folks uh, who were subsequently later acquired by Cisco. But that's a separate story. And um, I got interested in the technology because uh, initially I thought I was just dealing with a smart bunch of Swedes. Um, and then I realized I was dealing with a smart bunch of Swedes who were using very interesting technology. So I came, I think, into the uh, community because initially I started paying attention to the technology. Um, and then uh, I left Cisco and um, started doing angel investee types of things. And it occurred to me that, that if you're an angel investee, you need to manage your money because developers will waste it if you don't. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we don't waste it. It's product, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I always, it, it's funny when, like, as, as a consultant, you know, people would come to you, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you? And I used to always tell people, I can make your toaster fly if you give me enough time and money. Exactly. So, so my goal, of course, is to be efficient with, with my application of uh, funding, um, which sort of got me around. I sort of uh, reverse engineered uh, Paul Graham's um, investment thesis before I, I knew that he had an investment thesis. Um, so for those of you sort of interested, should pay attention to Paul Graham, because uh, he's got lots of things to say on the topic of uh, software engineering and, you know, how things should be done and how they should be done efficiently. Um, but I sort of arrived at the idea of the blob paradox um, myself by inspection, basically by my comparisons uh, running project uh, product at companies um, that there were ways to waste large amounts of money on budget to do projects and there were ways to do it efficiently and 
that's what first got me um, interested and excited about the um, airline community. Now, because I came from a sort of communications background space, um, I realized that Ericsson had basically, instead of brute forcing the solution um, which some of my previous employers had done and spent huge amounts of money uh, rewriting things in C, that some smart people at Ericsson had said, well, there's a generic class of problems here that need to be solved. Why don't we build something that actually deals with communications, real-time processing, um, failure of system elements, and they basically invented Erlang. So um, I think you've made comments on previous shows about the fact that uh, you know some of the large companies in the past have had uh, expense uh, budgets to do useful things. And I would say Ericsson, um, you know, did a very useful thing by uh, funding the airline developers in the very early age. So although I came along reasonably late to the process, I think I recognized the same thing that many other people have done. And that's why I got involved. Awesome. And so what is, our, what is your position with the foundation right now? You're on the board, right? I'm a board member, yeah. Okay, awesome. And Miriam? Um, yeah, well, I, I think I, well, I definitely came from a more traditional background than you, Alistair. I, well, I, I did study computer science engineering university, and, and I had to do internship, and I, I, I happened to land in a company, an amazing company, uh, that uh, we're doing an Erlang project. And that Erlang project uh, led to another Erlang project and then I graduated and, and, and that continued. I, I basically been doing high scale uh, backends uh, written in Erlang for 15, 16 years. And, and I guess that, that's quite a lot of time. And so what my, in my involvement in the community, I mean, nowadays, uh, I've, a couple of years ago, I they I remember uh, talking with Francesco Cesarini from Erlang Solutions about uh, how uh, we could do uh, some trainings around diversity and inclusion, and and him he brought up that was a group of people, companies that were having working uh, really hard for 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 some time. The industrialist group, and maybe I could join, and Errol could and Errol could join with them, and maybe we can move that forward. And right after I joined, um, they start talking about doing this foundation, and, and then and, and 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 that's how I became part part of it. I um, I'm a board member right now, but besides that, uh, I speak at conferences. I am organizer of the Erlang and Elixir meetup here in San Francisco. We do we do events every month. It's been lots of fun. And then I'm involved. I mean, I'm, I've been involved in Erlang for 15 years. I've worked for I've I've worked in Stockholm. Uh, Hand in hand with the people, with Lucas, with with Adam Nitberg, with with so many of them, including including Robert Virgin. So I I know I know them very very deeply. So so you're old school. I'm old school. Yeah, <laughs> I'm an old school person. <laughs> Jan. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting because like you know, especially talking to the two of y'all, and like you know, obviously I've talked to people like Robert and Joe and things like that that you know what, they've been around probably the longest, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, not everybody has. And so like a lot of the people I talk to, they've gotten involved within the last few years. And so it's, it's interesting to talk to people that have been around the community for as long as both of you have. Um, and then, 
you know, it, it makes sense. Like the foundation idea to me, you know, it makes sense from, if you look at other languages and other communities, you know, there's like the Apache foundation. Uh, we've actually talked about this on the show. I think it was about a year, year and a half ago about like some of these other foundations and how we kind of protect the languages that we love. And so I'm kind of curious, like how did the foundation start? Was it, I, I'm picturing like a phone call similar to, hello, Joe. <laughs> Should we start a foundation? Yes. So tell us a little bit about like how the foundation came about. Like what what was the what was the catalyst that started it? Miriam, have you got any um, history on this? Or it was a time in which uh, we were we were very very up there on the airline ecosystem, and then people started having these conversations, and they tried to move it forward, but I think it just never completely settled. Never got the momentum going in the early starts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes it, it it takes a lot of little voices here and there, and then trying to pull all those voices together yeah. uh, to really to build those foundations. Um, it's you know because I think from a lot of people's perspective, they they think, you know, why do we need a foundation? You know, I'm I'm working in my language that I like. You know, and and this isn't necessarily an Erling or you know a Beam thing. It's you know. Python developers, you know, they're, they're working in Python every day. Why do they need it? And I don't know. I, I always thought the rationale too, is that like, well, we want to protect these, the, not protect the language and protect the community. Uh, just so that if somebody, you know, I, I think on one show we use like, what if, what happens if platform tech shuts down and, you know, knock on wood, this would never happen, but, you know, Jose gets hit by a bus and yes, there's a core team, but you know, what if they decide they want to do another language or they get a job that just pulls them away from it? And so having these foundations that, that support system to kind of step in and say, no, we're going to make sure this language goes on is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the, the, um, you look back in the sort of, uh, longer term history of things, uh, there was clearly inside of Ericsson, uh, the decision was made to actually spin the the code out or open source it. Uh, and that was like 20, uh, just 20 plus years ago, we celebrated that um, event recently. And uh, that was, I think, a at the time, a very wise move because um, uh, the, there's a bunch of politics associated with this that I'm certainly not the right person to talk about. But there was concerns that the technology may atrophy and die inside of Ericsson and never see the light of day. So once that decision was made to make the, you know, the code open source, I think there have been some times when people had talked about, you know, doing something externally, but um, for a long period of time, you know, and it still is the case that Ericsson uh, has been doing a lot of work uh, on the code, a lot of it because of their own business interests in using the technology. Um, so I think it's been, um, it hasn't always been top of mind for players in the industry to want to set up a foundation because it was sort of working-ish. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, and even this is prior to, you know, Elixir turning up, there was uh, an airline industrial users group that was set up, which one could look at many of the individuals that are involved with the Ecosystem Foundation now um, 
used to be uh, associated with the Airline Industrial Users Group. And the, the intent of that organization was to make sure that there was a certain push and counterbalance um, to Ericsson roundabout, you know, things that were happening mostly in the OTP um, language space, uh, packaging, things like that. So that was all... Um, uh, that was all well and good, but it was more along that the setup of the airline industrial users group was much more of companies showing their interest to what happened uh, to the technology and make sure that Ericsson wasn't just focused on its own needs. So I think the ultimate catalyst to the ecosystem foundation is really because of Elixir. Um, which I think has been a hugely useful stimulant to the community. Um, uh, frankly, I think Erlang might have ended up uh, atrophying and disappearing had the Elixir community not bootstrapped itself. Um, so this has created, you know, huge numbers of of interests in terms of, you know project people turning up but it also created uh, an interest in in harmonization of certain things between the languages and making sure that you know stuff was happening on the beam that needed to support um, any of the people who were using the technology so i think that's given us a new impetus to the idea that we wanted to have some sort of foundation that would work around the language to your point and it it obviously became uh, appropriate to do it more along the lines of the Apache Foundation or the Python Foundation and have it much more member uh, and user-based than something that was driven or run by corporates. So um, that was sort of the impetus to us setting up a um, the foundation as a as a not-for-profit 501c3, which is essentially run and managed by members and not corporations. So um, it, it's very much a uh, a desire to set this up as something that that can live for um, decades and be managed by people who care about the technology. So, like, what is like if you had to give like a quick elevator pitch kind of sort of thing on like the the primary goal of the foundation is it i mean what, what would you say it's obviously to uh you know it's member centric yes but like is the goal ultimately to just lead the community or is it you know well uh, the, in, in tr so the goal of all of, of all corporations is to survive right <laughs> first <laughs> so, and foremost they have to survive <laughs> exactly so, uh, so, so that's relatively easily stated, but uh, and I think then the logical, you know, secondary things about that are right, growth and inclusion. Right, we want to get more people using the technology and 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 help in terms of you know competing for people's um, interests in the space of computer languages. Right, that's um, so. Um, it's pretty obvious that other uh, languages have put their shingle out there, right? I think the Python Foundation's a, a, an inspiration to us when we look at uh, what they've done for their language and how they've sort of kick-started it and um, provided a certain level of, of structure and impetus to what they're doing. And um, it, the, 
the idea, I think, would be to continue to to um, grow the community. Um, that that's the definition of surviving, right? Is if you if you're not expanding, at some point you're contracting and you will become obsolete. And that maybe the result, all languages, computer languages, may become obsolete over time. But the the intent of the foundation is to make sure that that we uh, lengthen the utility of the technology uh, as long as it's applicable. Well, it's it's very interesting too that you, to, that you bring that up and how this like you know we beam together sort of thing. You know, we come together uh, on the beam. I, I remember back. Uh, this was the. Um, it was back before Code Beam when it was uh, Erlang Factory in San Francisco, and it was the first Erlang Factory that had an Elixir track. I mean, it, I think there was, you know, the the speakers were basically the tracked attendees as well. <laughs> it was pretty small. <laughs> okay. but I, I remember there was a lot of conversation. It was almost like you know your uh, you know step relative shows up and everybody's like, yeah, okay, we're, we're being nice to him, but you know, <laughs> that doesn't get to sit at the big table yet. Uh, so it's, it was kind of interesting and you know, a lot of the, the initial feedback or what felt like the initial feedback from the Erlang community was, yeah, y'all are here, but you know, you're just a fad. You're going to kind of go away. And you know, and a, and a lot of times too, it was presented as like, why do we need to grow? Why do we need more people in there? And I, you know, I kind of mentioned it to several people similar to what you're saying is, well, if you don't grow developers, if you don't have more projects using your language, eventually your language goes away. And so it's funny is, I think it was almost a year later, Fred Haber gave a talk at Erlang user conference in Sweden. And he basically kind of, I don't want to say he called out the community, but he basically was like, look, these Elixir folks, they're right. Our tooling is is archaic. Our documentation is when it's there, it's it's hard to parse. You know, it's hard to read, um, hard to understand. And so, it, it was almost that. If I could point to a moment that I remember being like, "Okay, this is the switch. This is when the two, you know, Elixir and Erling really kind of come together as community and start to grow." I, I feel like that that was probably the talk or at least in my eyes, that was the talk that really brought the Erlangers around to saying, all right, we need to get take this Elixir thing seriously. So I certainly, uh, certainly think you, uh, the, the, the argument has been one, one, one prejudice at, at a time, right? And I certainly think we've crossed the Rubicon. Um, so there was, I used to sort of um, listen to the chatter and there was definitely the sort of the greens and the blues uh, thing going on um, maybe three years ago. Um, I wouldn't know if I could really put my finger on, you know, when it actually changed. Um, but I would say, yeah, everybody's sort of way past that now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, and I do think that the, to, to your point, there's a, there's a lot of cross learning cultural things that can sort of go on. You know, I have a slightly more benign view about the fact that the, you know, the Baltic folks have been working with their technology for so long that they just didn't realize how um, Byzantine and occasionally obscure it was, right? So um, it, it took a whole bunch of other people turning up and going, you know, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> to sort of change that mindset. And initially their first response was like, yeah, get out of here. Uh -oh. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe you do have some points. So, um, 
so well, yeah, I, I, it's been interesting to watch that. Well, Miriam, so are you using Elixir now or are you strictly Erlang? I, at, well, at my work, I, uh, well, I have a 10 year old code base, uh, which is mostly Erlang. However, uh, there is, uh, many projects in our company, uh, in written in Elixir. Okay. Well, so, and since you've been around for as long as you have, you know, 15 years, like how, what is your perspective on that change and that shift? Did you kind of see it coming or did you kind of, I mean, what were your kind of feelings about the way Erling, the direction Erling was going? Well, I, I've always been very, very passionate about the the advantages of using this uh, language. So when I uh, slowly started to realize that there was a, a bunch of people who were just as passionate as I was, who were uh, making this ecosystem even better than it was uh, by providing all this uh, documentation, tooling, libraries on top, which are making it so much easier to wrap up with. I've been, I mean, I'm super happy uh, that this is happening. I'm super happy, very positive about the future. I remember when I when I started myself in, in this technology uh, like 16 years ago, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't very... It wasn't a lot of uh, material out there. And I remember looking at those error traces and, and I was like, what is going on here? I don't understand a single word of this character. This is madness. I want to get out of here. I've had that feeling for weeks. So I, I understand uh, how uh, it, unusual was the syntax. Even by that time, I can't imagine what would be the perception nowadays, um, given all these high-level uh, uh, languages coming. But I think uh, I think as, as Alistair said, I think we are all I'm just I'm just so positive of of the future, and I'm really positive that we have uh, managed to set up this foundation, uh, which is not really about Erlang and Elixir. It's really about all the languages uh, running on on this virtual machine. And then then if if any other language in the future comes up and it and it works better, I'm super great that. Uh, we can move this forward as well. Yeah, I saw on the uh, the Erlang ecosystem uh, Erlang ecosystem foundation Twitter account the other day. There was a it was it was a tweet about the corporate sponsorships and things like that. But the hashtag we beam together I thought was pretty cool. It was like uh, you know we are a community together, and re- regardless of whether or not you're using Erlang or Elixir or LFE or Gleam now, you know, and, and there's other languages out there. It's like we're in this together, and if mm-hmm. we and if we want things to grow and remain there for generations to come or, you know, or at least another generation, you know, we really do kind of need to back this. Yes. Uh, and so well, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about, um, cause I, I'm curious and I'm sure there's other listeners out there that are curious as well. So basically it kind of, from my understanding breaks the, the foundation down into obviously there's board members, but there's members and there, and you can be a free member, or you can pay the yearly. And we'll talk about the benefits of why you would want to do that. Uh, but then there's working groups, and then you can actually be a corporate sponsor, uh, have a corporate sponsorship. And from my understanding too, if you get in on the corporate sponsorships now, you actually are going to be listed as a founding sponsor, right? That is correct. That is correct. Um, and that we, time's running out, right? It is running out. We we have uh, we have actually just. Uh, uh, 
decided to give it a, a few more weeks. We're going to give it uh, another month uh, uh, for that to happen. But uh, so you're a company, you're interested in being a sponsor, uh, reach out to us. Uh, yeah, so contact EEF at erlef.org. E uh, that's how you reach out to us, and 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 then um, you can you can still be a, a founding sponsor. Awesome, yeah, and I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, I know the we have a, a promo for the the EEF at the beginning of the show uh, that also lists the website, but I definitely encourage everybody to get out there. Let's let's talk about um, I guess members first because members I mean that's the foundation right I mean the members are the foundation so what does it mean to be a member? Um, so the the ideally uh, there's the the purpose is to get people to to have some mechanism a substrate a way to be engaged in the community. Um, so there are several levels of of people you know being active and um like any other sort of foundation which has you know different tiered levels um the 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 we we hope we strive to provide places where people can uh, you know find the place that they want to be um they want to be in the organization um uh, obviously, the present board members uh, ha happen to be here, uh, but we're not going to be around forever. Um, I might be the first one to leave, <laughs> being, I think, probably the oldest. So um, at, at some point, uh, we need younger people to take over. Um, and so, so there's the, the idea is to get uh, and provide a mechanism for people who want to be uh, heavily engaged in the community to sort of join up and show their level of interest. And if people are just sort of, you know, sniffing around or trying to figure out whether they want to be engaged, um, we have the sort of very basic uh, membership level uh, that, you know, people can be a member of the community and just be recognized um, that they get access to sort of some of the information flow and other types of things, but they don't have to uh, support the organization. Um, clearly, we're very interested in people wanting to support the organization. Um, we believe anybody who's an active programmer at the moment should be wanting to make sure that the technology survives. It's a bit of an argument, really, for if you're investing your time and effort um, learning the language, um, you want to... Um, ensure that your uh, marketability um, remains active for um, several, you know, tens of years of your working life. Um, so just like, you know, people contribute to their church or any other types of things, we would hope that um, members saw it as in their interests to be helping fund the organization so we'd like as many people to sign up as um, supporting regular members so that they pay their membership dues and that they can actually be actively engaged in um, the community and its work and help steer uh, the activities uh, that that the foundation's going to engage in um, so that's it we'd like most people to be um, 
to you know to actually want to put some skin in the game um, in terms of of funding it as well as also wanting to have a say in in what happens um, over the course of you know the next ten years. It's interesting can, about like some of the benefits. Like I know we talked about we talk about like voting for things. Like what what kind of things do members vote for? Board members. Oh, okay. They get to replace us. So I'm, I'm looking for people who want to replace me. Uh, so. Well, so, so I go out and I become a member. Does that mean I have potential to be a board member at some point? Yes. I guess you have to be, you have to be yes, very active. Be a board member. I will <laughs> stop doing this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the goal. I, I want the people to, to take it. I want the people to take it, to make it all, to make it grow. I want them to come to us uh, with ideas, with specific ideas that they think will work to make this ecosystem better for everyone and and say and ask us for specific things we can help them with to make it better and and those specific things could be money but they could be as well uh, just help me get in touch with the right person or get help me get the influence on the right uh, working group to move this project forward and I think it could be like you need a library support, you might need a training you, uh, for, for a specific technology or in a specific country. You might need to raise awareness that there is a, like a need in a specific country for the support of something. It's, it's really, it really has to come from every single one of, or, of, of you, of you who are listening to this, because we, we just know what we know. We need you to help us do this community uh, as much as better as possible for you. And I think that that's that, that's great too. Is the it's the idea that we're you know it, it takes a village. You know, <laughs> we all <laughs> if you're yep. and I think back to like when I was learning Elixir. You know, when I first found Elixir, there wasn't anybody really using Elixir. This is even prior to Dave Thomas's uh, release, the beta release of uh, programming Elixir. And for the first like year or so, it was really like it felt very disconnected. Like everybody was spread out. There was, you know, people all over the world, but it it felt like I swear there was like 10, 10 people, <laughs> but nobody was in the same area. You know, everybody is so spread out. And so if you're, if you need resources in, you know, I, you know, Vietnam, you know, you're wanting to get resources on uh, Elixir or Erlang or things like that. I, I mean, is that something like the, the, uh, and I just picked a random country, but mm-hmm. you know, is it that like, that's something that people could come to the foundation and say, Hey, I need help trying to find resources. I need, you know, it's not necessarily a money thing. It's a, you know, we don't know where these resources are. Can you help point us in those directions? Yep. So, so certainly being a clearing, um, I mean, if you want to take the sort of ana- analogy of the sort of medieval, um, you know, market or uh, whatever it is, right? The, the intent is for people to be, to, to know where they can go to exchange uh, information and communication to people who have like-minded interests. Um, so that's certainly uh, a, a goal of the, uh, the foundation. But simultaneously, to, to your point, we, we also want to engage in certain directed um, activities. Um, so the sort of working groups are potentially the best 
example of those things where um, some subset of the uh, members decide that something needs to get, you know, focus. Um, so, you know, we just recently set up the security working group to deal with, you know, issues of specifically related to, you know, security, which should be on everybody's mind as a problem. Very few people, I think, are, are experts in this area, um, but it's in everybody's interest that that security is being dealt with. So, ensuring that there's a um, much smaller group of uh, members who actually have the background and want to go deal with stuff in that area is is useful, and they should be supported. And they may end up. Um, you know, wanting to spend some of our um, uh, dues and sponsorship money on doing specific things that will benefit the whole of the community. And so anybody who's, you know, got uh, issues or expertise in this area um, would want to be part of the, say, the security working group um, for those purposes. So again, it's a mechanism, well, the foundation should be a, the, this, forum to allow people to gravitate to the areas that they that they feel passionately about and have the skills to help the rest of the community out with well now so talking about the working groups i know that there's there's a set of working groups right now of around like uh, the fellowship which is a cool thing that they're that the foundation is doing we're electing fellows uh, lifetime fellows to the community, but uh, like observability, and you mentioned the security group. How does one like either? I, I assume obviously you could go out and you could just reach out to the to the working groups, but like how does one decide? I want to start a working group, and what is kind of the process for that? Is it reaching out to the board specifically and saying, "Hey, I think we need this," and then the board votes on the working group, or like what's that process look like? Will we? Um Exactly, so Miriam, tell us, you did one today. Exactly. <laughs> I just did one today. I just got my, well, this is my fourth working group. I feel like I'm, my work is to kickstart working groups lately. <laughs> so uh, this one, uh, today uh, we approve education, training, and adoption working group. Super nice. excited about this one. I feel it's going to help us a lot in the future but uh so what i did at for for setting this up was to talk around to people say hey i, I would like to do a working group on this what would something you would be interested with or you know someone who would be interested on this and you slowly gather this uh you, this initial uh, set of uh people who initial list of volunteers who will help you kick this out kick this up and then you gather we gather them there is a form in our website uh, uh, to so that you have to fill uh, in order to uh, do the proposal to the board and in that form you have to set the the name of the working group uh, the statement the its benefits of the to the community uh, what you would expect to have a short-term or long-term durable works and then uh, explain why do you need the foundation to do this working group and, and once you have those fill out, uh, you send it to the board for, uh, for approval in the next weeks. And then uh, it will be up uh, to the board members to vote if we want to support it. And if we do, then, then you're all set and then uh, you're free to do whatever you want. And, and then come to, and then you just, it's just a matter of 
uh, communicating with your working group on a regular basis from the board to uh, to uh, and to have a better understanding uh, from each other and how we help each other and ask and make a specific ask to help each other uh, accomplish their, their goals of the working group. You know, obviously, it sounds like that. Uh, you know, having these working groups, you do kind of get a support system. So, like once once it becomes official that there's a working group. Mm-hmm. The, the foundation, it's in the foundation's best interest to try to help that working group uh, stay afloat and make sure it keeps going and help recruit volunteers and things like that. It's, you know, I, I look at some of the working groups and some of them seem like, you know, they're kind of general, like, you know, security and tooling, observability. And then there's, uh, that's great to hear that there's going to be an education working group. I think that that's, uh, that's awesome. But you know, it, you don't necessarily even have to create a working group. You can join to Alistair's point if you feel like, you know, hey, you can uh, lend something to that group, uh, reach out. But like, I think a lot of people would be sitting out there going, oh, I don't know how, how much time is that going to take? And I know that it's kind of kicked around here and there, but what is, what is the time commitment? Is it, is it a full-time job to be in a working group? <laughs> Well, now for you, Miriam, you don't get to answer that because you're in like five of them, right? <laughs> yes, I was just like, well, lately it's really like a full-time job. I hope, I hope my boss is not hearing this. <laughs> I was just telling this, I'm doing this with my free time, which just, I do. Just don't, don't tell them the episode got released. I don't know. I don't okay, know when it's going to get released. So, um, yeah. So, well, most of the working groups being involved are meeting uh, like once, one hour every two weeks. And then we decide uh, on some action items, which should take maybe a couple of hours sometimes. And sometimes you don't have a lot of action items for that week. Uh, but there's uh, definitely really, it's up to your individual. Uh, it's up to the individual to decide how, what's the level of commitment. We want people who are participating in the working group to be active in the working group. Uh, but at the same time, we are all very, very busy. So we understand that you cannot dedicate to two days a week. Yeah, I think free. that's, uh, 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 you know, anybody who's been involved in other working groups and other, you know, industry areas, you get a typical sort of Pareto roll-off of, um, of time commitment from, from the individual members. And um, sometimes you, um, you have uh, some people who don't contribute a huge amount of time, but uh, they do have very special skill sets, which uh, certainly help um, the working group and they can apply their, um, you know, input judiciously to things. So there's no, it, it's not just an issue of um, hours worked uh, in any particular area, but sometimes experience and uh, skill or knowledge, arcane knowledge that helps the, the general process. So, you know, like any theory of building uh, utility by having diverse teams um, sort of similar similar thoughts apply to having a, a reasonably diverse working group um, and you know just from the board's perspective uh, we're not here to um, tell people what they think they should be working on inside of the community so as long as a um, a group of like-minded individuals can get together and say, we want to do stuff. 
um, the process is relatively um, easy for people to set themselves up working groups. The only things that I think the board formally cares about is, you know, relevance, um, i.e. if somebody wanted to have a working group on knitting patterns, um, it would probably not get in because it's like, uh, unless somebody can, you know, explain how knitting <laughs> patterns relate to some sort of uh, obscure um, mathematical closure of Turing machines, which is going to make uh, Elixir better than something else, the answer is, well, probably not. The other thing that we do care about is like reputational <laughs> damage, right? So if a working group wanted to set itself up, which had, um, you know, antisocial tendencies or something like that, then we would probably, you know, not charter that either. Um, <laughs> and then the third thing that we sort of care about is, is the working group right. wanting to, you know, demand large amounts of money. So we have a sort of separate um, process where if a working group wants to ask a budget, they'll have to, you know, write up their proposals and do other types of things. But I can imagine if a working group set itself up along the lines of, uh, you know, interesting, um, interesting party city uh you know, working group or something like that, I, I think the answer is, well, we would know where that's going to end up. So they might not get chartered to start with. But uh, wait, so so what you're, what you're saying is I can't start a working group for a vacation fund. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah. that's not going to get well, off the ground. But I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to all the listeners out there that are disappointed. <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, that makes total sense too. It's like, you know, I think the idea of the foundation is, yeah, there's money to support and make sure things go on. But it's also like, you know, libraries that become very important to the community that somebody can't maintain them, like the you know, the foundation kind of helping ease that burden, you know, whether or not, it, um, you know, some some type of financial help or something like that to keep a project going, you know, it's it's really... You know, it seems to me that like kind of that's where the budget is best spent is making sure that the support is there for education and training and, you know, making sure that libraries that are essential to the community remain can, are, can remain supported. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, and again, this is one of the reasons why um, it, it's useful for people to want to be members and have interest in it, right, is that we we will be, um, to, to, to a greater extent, um, that they will get to decide whether we're spending money appropriately on things, right? So again, back to the control, ultimate control re resides with the members and their ability to, um, to provide guidance to the board about what, um, what things they, they think are important and I think you've touched on several. I mean, the, the two things that I keep hearing again and again are sort of training, education, outreach stuff. And then the one is, you know, the useful things that everybody needs to keep useful. Um, so uh, I can imagine that that's probably where we're going to be spending uh, most of our budget in those particular areas. But again, we we need the community to help define what those things look like, right? Um, 
the board has a very, I mean, like in the board of any other corporate entity, is is primarily there for oversight. Um, so we're here to make sure the things that we're concerned about is making sure we don't go bankrupt and making sure that we don't destroy the reputation of the organization. Um, we need people to actually want to do specific things um, and work on specific things. And it's certainly not in you know, any of our thoughts on the, at least at the board level to say, okay, well, it must be these things, right? We're, we're looking for the members to say, we care about those things over there and this is what we want to do about it. It's like, fine, how do we help you? Um, so, um, and again, the only parameters I think we care about is making sure that people don't do things which would, you know, damage the reputation of the organization and or its uh, fundamental viability. So uh, those are the only things that we uh, really care a lot about at the board level. One of the things that I, I really like is with the corporate sponsorships. Now, I know that as many of you have probably seen one of the presentations that are out there, listeners, um, at, at one of the recent conferences where they've kind of talked about the, the corporations, they can be corporate sponsors, but they don't, that doesn't give them a vote or anything like that. That's just supporting the community, which I go back you know, prior to the, the idea of the foundation and, you know, back to consulting days was, you know, the, you know, even when, you know, talking to people about adopting Elixir and things like that, it's like, well, should we, you know, what happens to it? How is it, you know, how do you, you know, is it okay to use this language and things like that? And, you know, really from a corporate standpoint, corporations really should invest in the tools that they use. Now, giving that financial contribution, you're worried about whether or not Erlang or Elixir are going to be around for 10, 20 years. Well, put your money in there and say, look, I want to make sure that we are supporting these tools that we use to make sure that they're there long term. And, and as a corporation, or if you work at a corporation, you know, encourage other individuals that are using these tools to join up and become members. Because you know, that's, that's how we grow the community. That's how we keep the community. And, and I know growth sometimes is kind of scary for people out there, but that's how you sustain. You, you can't, <laughs> yeah, eventually, like you said, you know, people get older, they retire, they, you know, if, if we're not constantly filling the community with new members and new people, eventually it will go away. And so it's really important if we want our tools and our, our languages to, to go on well past our retirements, we need to make sure that we're we're supporting these tools. Yep, and I think that's the the that is the the primary um, advantage to to corporations um, to want to be sponsors is uh, is twofold, right? They're interested in a supply of um, competent programmers uh, themselves, so that's sort of probably the thing that we hear the most feedback from companies is um, we like your technology, but uh, we're finding it hard to find programmers, right? So that's the sort of number one um, topic. And the other one, as you pointed out, um, you know, the code doesn't maintain itself. So uh, we need a vibrant community of, of people who are interested and willing to do stuff and also a community that recognizes the good stuff from the less important stuff. Um, that can focus on keeping and maintaining 
um, the code. So corporations have reaped huge advantage from open source, uh, but it's not free, right? The, um, the, they need to put back into the infrastructure to make sure that things stay around. And I think corporations have understood this um, in, in the abstract, right? Many are members of the Linux Foundation or Apache or any of the other types of things, right? So they understand that they need to be, you know, giving back to these communities. Um, one of the things that's been important in setting up the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is that we needed a formal, you know, we needed a formal address and bank account for, for corporations who are specifically interested in the Beam languages to uh, where to actually donate. So um, that's, you know, very important thing that we've done is we've, we've provided them a mechanism where they can sort of pull their resources. And um, again, it goes back to the sort of medieval uh, marketplace, year, yearly market or something like that. Everybody knows that they can turn up at the same time in the same place and buy and sell stuff. So we're, we're that location for things that are happening in the beam space. All right. So everybody, I would highly recommend you hitting it's E-R-L-E-F dot org. Uh, check out the site. Uh, sign up to be a member. It's, you know, let's show our support. You have to, you know, some, I always say, you, you know, you have to put your, your money where your, uh, your what is it? The, uh, your heart is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Put your money where your heart is, and if you love your tools, you should you should donate, and so that we can keep this community growing for years to come. All right, you know what time it is. I know both of you have been anxiously waiting for five behind the code. Oh my goodness! <laughs> okay, can, can we not answer more questions about the foundation, please? Yeah, no more foundation <laughs> questions. Great. These are kind of foundation questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to establish some stuff with the five behind the code. So we're going to find out a little bit about y'all's foundation. So w the easy one here, because I've got some, I got, I got some, I got some good questions lined up, but we'll start off simple. What did you have for breakfast today? Because you got to start with a good foundation, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Miriam, you're up. What did you have for breakfast? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to find the words in English. Uh, oats, oats and milk. Oats and milk. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, so I had muesli and tea. Nice. See, I, I haven't been, uh, I've been kind of not eating until like a certain time. So I wake up in the morning and I have a, a drink with, it's a, like a vitamin drink with branch chain amino acids and then coffee, lots of coffee. So... <laughs> For the for the listeners out there that think that I'm talking at a uh, faster speed, it's it's not your ears. I'm just having a lot of coffee. Fully caffeinated. Exactly. I'm fully caffeinated. So now going back to the foundation, you know, we have to look when you were growing up, what was your favorite subject in school? Maths. Math? Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Alistair? I actually liked metalwork, shop. I think it nice. would be, uh, and pottery. So, um, yeah, I like those. I, I also enjoyed math, but, um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed getting my hands dirty. So, uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I took a, um, I used to love the art classes and I took, um, uh, a sculpting class. 
but I also had a problem like actually getting to school. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> mostly because there was other fun stuff to do that wasn't in school. Um, <laughs> but, but so I took this uh, uh, sculpting class and I had made this wolf and it was pretty good looking if I remember correctly. And a friend of mine was in the class with me and I mean, we were kind of troublemakers anywhere anyway. And she was like, ha And she stabbed my wolf <laughs> and I, I ended up like, you know, we were horsing around and she like stabbed the wolf and it, it all broke up. And I was like, ah, and that was like, all right, well, I'm never going back to that one again. So uh, <laughs> I have never done sculpture since. <laughs> But all right, so now, okay, now see around question three is when they start getting a little more difficult. I, I, I throw a few softballs up there to try to get you going. Um, how about who was the most influential person in your life? Hmm. Actually, that's uh, well, actually, it might. Uh, so this is this is an interestingly so it was probably one of my bad bosses. Mm. Um, so in the sense of like, don't do things like this. <laughs> so I'm not going to name <laughs> names, but, but actually the, the, you know, leading by example or leading by counter example, I think has been quite useful, um, for me. Uh, so, so from my perspective, yeah, I, I think the, the, what not to do and to a certain extent, um, learn when to be lazy um, was a very useful thing that it took me um, well this particular boss that I'm thinking about was you know he was just entirely self-focused which I don't think is the right thing for a company but he taught me that um, he made a lot of decisions by not doing anything and um, his team was actually quite happy so it, it 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 taught me to to you know back off and you know pick your fights about what you wanted to be doing um and then just let a lot of the chaos just roll uh because most of the time you think you might have a better idea but you don't really so just let everybody else go with it and see what happens so um which is a bit of a uh, i don't know buddhist uh, you know, knowest, whatever it is, uh, philosophy on life. But um, I might have been more of a goody two-shoes before that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to see, like, uh, I know a lot of people when they hear that, like, what was the most influential person? They always think of somebody that they looked up to or they admired or something like that. And a, a lot of times the people that influence you the most are people that you're trying to not be like. Like, you know, I, I don't want to be like that person. I want to be, you know, better than that. Or, you know, I want to treat people better than that. Or, um, you know, so, I mean, it is, it's, it's interesting to hear because usually, like I said, people, people come up with somebody that they kind of look up to or admire. So it's interesting to hear that opposite side, opposite take on that question. All right. So Marion. Yep. So that's a lot of, it's funny because it's been changing, of course, but that I think I'm going to go back to, to the most, to the roots. And I, I mean, it's changing over the years because there's a lot of people who's been very influential to me in the last few years. And I think those have really changed a lot of things on me. 
But if you think about the most, most, of course, uh, and this is a topic, it's my mother, but it, it definitely is because uh, she was very, very, a very typical mother. She was a typical mother who was uh, pushing me to study, especially study, study computer science when I wanted to, actually I wanted to be an architect, but she, she, was, she was very honest with me. She told me, Marianne, your drawings are horrible. <laughs> well, an apple, it looks like a banana when you draw an apple. So, so she was like, I think you, if you like maths, that's okay. Why don't you go to do this computer thing, which is kind of kicking off. Right now, it was a time when personal computers were, were starting to, to be a thing, at least where I was. Uh, and, and then she was like a really role model of my life because even right now, uh, she's still studying in the universities, uh, history and, 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 and English language and a lot of things. So she's always a model of uh, try to push yourself uh, beyond and, and, and just don't settle. So I, I thank her for, for that. Nice. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the people that, uh, it's a wide range of people that can influence you. And I think it's, it's funny, you, like you, you call it your mom, because, and just for being honest on uh, with you, uh, my, my daughter who recently had uh, our first grandchild uh, reached out to my wife. It's actually my stepdaughter, but she reached out to my wife and she's like, you know, we're, we're debating on whether or not the baby's cute. We think the baby's cute. You know, we think the baby is adorable, but you know, are people just telling us the baby's cute or is the baby really cute? And of course my wife was like, no, the baby's really cute. She responds back, ask Johnny, cause he'll tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I have no problem calling out an ugly baby. I mean, and, and but it is a cute baby. I'm not just saying that it is a cute baby. Um, I did tell her she she had like kind of taken some uh, like pictures of the baby with like a black and white lens, and so I was like, yeah, the black and white lens, not so much, but it's a cute baby. <laughs> so, but you got to be honest, right? You know, in a nice way. Um, all right, so this one I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna ask this next question, but and then I'll kind of set it up with like maybe an example from, from myself, just so, uh, so the question is what's one, one moment in your life or one time in your life that, that changed the course of your life. And I'll, I'll kind of, I'll hit, hit you up with like kind of what I was thinking is, is so like I did, you know, I was in bands for a long time. I was in culinary and I actually was wanting to be a chef and kind of the similar with the, the, uh, it sounds like Marion, your moment might be the moment your mom told you you couldn't draw, <laughs> but, but, uh, as a chef, I was like, you know, maybe I, you know, I, I want to kind of go down the chef path. I want to go to culinary school and I got fired from a job and I realized this is not the life that I want to live. Like it wasn't anything wrong that I had done either. It was like, I had actually given a month's notice. I was going to like start schooling and they had just, you know, they had basically told me a week after I told them, I gave them a month's notice the, that they, and I've told the story on the show before, but, um, the, you know, they let me go. And after that, instead of getting another culinary job or another job in a restaurant, I, decided, you know what, I'm going to get back into computers and my life, you know, it didn't jump directly into programming, but it ended up changing the course of my life. And that's kind of where I'm at now. So, um, so now I'll pose the question to y'all. Is there, is there, is there a moment that changed your life or changed the course of your life? 
There is one for me. That was an easy one. Um, so around two years ago, I, I suddenly was elected as uh, women to follow, a staff engineer to follow uh, in tech. And, and of course, when, when you are elected something like that, you're like, yay, this is great, whatever, and then you move on with your life. Uh, but the thing is that um, it suddenly got uh, picked up uh, by, by press in my hometown in Spain. And over the course of like a week or two, I started to appear on, on TV and radio or newspapers. I was, I was a front page of, on national newspapers. My photo was there. It was, was really, really hard to swallow if you've, if you've been like me. And for, for some context, I've been the kind of person who has been hidden all her life. Like, and I mean hidden, like even though I've been in this community for 15 years, uh, you cannot really see that much from me because I, I was very... I just don't write, I don't share, I don't blog post. I, I, I just try to be as hidden as possible from, from everyone. So putting myself out there uh, was really hard. Uh, but that moment was when I suddenly started to receive uh, uh, emails from, from, from people from I didn't know, as from mothers who were saying that their little kids, their daughter was seeing me on, on the TV or they were seeing me on the newspapers and they hear my story. And now they wanted to be like me and they wanted to study computer science engineer and they wanted to travel around the world and, and make, this, make this a living. And, and that was like a wow moment for me because that moment I realized that I could have impact on people and, and it felt like it was my responsibility uh, to be out there uh, for those little girls to see to show those little girls that they could they could do us they could do it that they could they could do this career in tech uh, and and this is how I'm like I really don't like <laughs> to do public speaking but I'm doing <laughs> it for I really don't like to be here talking I promise you that but I'm doing it for for them. Well, we really appreciate it. And that is an awesome story. That is, it's, you know, anytime you get feedback like that on something you do, it's, you know, that's, I mean, that, that's a whole nother level of just awesomeness. And so I'm, thank you for sharing that story too. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I mean, I don't like, I like, it's fine, but I, I really prefer to do other things. <laughs> it's really, really, really hard for me. But I think. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like the whole knighthood thing. Now you have to go out and conquer the world, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, you're on your way and that's pretty awesome. So, Alistair, how about you? Okay, well, uh, hopefully I can avoid that, uh, Miriam's <laughs> 15, 15 minutes of fame or whatever it is. Uh, uh, so, uh, certainly hasn't happened at that level of force uh, in my general direction. So, uh, nor should it do because, uh, I fall into the category of, yeah, sort of advantaged at multiple levels. So that's not, uh, we wouldn't want to turn that into a, a story. So, um, I actually think the most important, so, I mean, the ones, the course of one's life changes like lots, right? So, uh, but I think the thing that probably changed my future the most was uh, uh, having a girlfriend after college 
that spoke a second language. So, well, she spoke a language different from mine. So I had to learn, well, I didn't have to, uh, we could have communicated in English, but I chose to learn um, German. So um, wasn't something that I'd been planning to do, um, but I'm now bilingual um, uh, English and German. And I went to live in Germany for uh, six years and it's, uh, that change of perspective um, took me for, I probably, I don't know if I would have always stayed in the uh, UK, but it certainly um, uh, accelerated me out of that uh, Anglophone um, uh, area. And I've sort of lived in uh, Germany and feel quite, you know, happy and content as a um, uh as a European, um, and I think that that was a very valuable change of perspective for me. And just as you've had sort of conversations on this program about the uh, the different utility of computer languages, I actually think that there's a strong case to be made for the different utility of, of spoken languages, because um, I can clearly think about certain things in German better than I can about them in in English. And um, it, it has a structure and uh, utility as a language that allows you to make certain decisions, I think, much more crisply and clearly than you can do in English. I'm not saying it's better than English. I'm just saying it's a different tool for, for thinking in. Uh, and I personally, I don't know if anybody can prove this, but I don't think it's any surprise that... that uh, a lot of political and philosophical uh, thought came out of German speaking because it just sort of the language lends itself to to creating thoughts about those things. Now, whether there's any reality to those things is a separate debate. But uh, you know, there's uh, so that was for me the a big change. It was not something that I've been plan planning to do, and I'm uh, very happy that I became bilingual in my twenties. Um, I think I would be a much more diminished person if I hadn't learned that. That is awesome. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that I, I toy around with, like, you know, trying to learn other languages. And it's difficult, especially when you uh, try to, uh, like, one of the things, like I, I was talking about, like, I was trying to learn Swedish um, and you know, cause I was like, Oh, we're going to Sweden. This is a few years ago. I was like, I'll, I'll try to learn it and see if I can pick it up. And, it's hard if you're not immersed in it. And then when you go to some of the countries, sometimes if you're, if you're not kind of, if you're not immersed in it enough to where you have some, a good uh, vocabulary in the language, like especially in Sweden, I found that like, as soon as I would strike or start trying to talk, people would realize that I spoke English <laughs> and they immediately wanted to switch over and speak English. Um, and so it, it was hard to learn or hard to try to continue learning it. And so I kind of gave up for a little bit. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said about learning other languages. I think that's, that's awesome. So, all right. One last question. What's something you wish you learned earlier in life as part of your foundation? <laughs> See how these all kind of wrap the foundation right back into it. <laughs> like our foundation, like persons, not foundation, foundation. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes getting things is just as simple as ask for things. 
Ah, yeah. Don't take, don't think people know what you want. You have to ask for the things you want. In in some, and quite often you will get those things. This is a very simple concept, but it took me a while to figure it out. That is something that, it, yeah, it does take time to learn that, doesn't it? I, and I see even like with my kids, a lot of times, like you're like, why didn't why didn't you just ask if you want? <laughs> and they, I didn't think about it. You know, it's like, well, you you missed out on something because you didn't ask. You know, so. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Alistair? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's anything. I mean, can't think of anything that I had. I, actually, the just doing it thing is, um, I did learn that relatively. I mean, I, I've started things and organizations before. Um, so for me, it's, uh, you know, just the idea of, you know, actually doing it don't you know. <laughs> so at some point it's like you know stop complaining that nobody's doing it and just do it right so sometimes it's like you just have to step up and go okay fine we're doing this right so i think and i i think i learned that pretty early on um so i don't think there's any i couldn't have learned that any earlier it, it sort of became relatively <laughs> obvious that, <laughs> That if 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 you just let apathy, apathy will win the day, right? If you if other individuals don't step up, so uh, it, it is quite interesting that, uh, and this is a sort of more generic concept at the moment, right? There's lots of people complaining about things, and it's just so easy to step up and do stuff. Um, so you know, if you look at the amount of grumpiness uh, going around at the moment, it's like, well, okay, did you do anything about it? <laughs> it's like, okay, no. Oh, wait, you want people <laughs> to get off the couch and do something about it? <laughs> <laughs> about, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, so yeah, it's just um, you know, what did Woody Allen say or something like you know, uh, most of life is just like turning up. So, uh, so yeah, turn up and do something. It's, exactly. Uh, and on, on that note, people should turn up and become members of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. Exactly. Absolutely. See how we brought that? Like, I'm getting better yeah, at the segue you. thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Very impressed. <laughs> so, well, it was great talking to y'all and great, great hearing about the foundation. Um, I think it, you know, it's, it's really important for the community and for the long-term success of the community, not just with Erlang or not just with Elixir, but across the beam. Um, I think, you know, like, the foundation tweeted, you know, we, we beam together. We're, we're in this together and we want to make sure it stays around for a long time. Yep. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.